friendships tend to last longer than, than romantic partnerships. Yeah. And yeah. we need these multiple types of ties in order to have a strong social support network. Mm. But for some reason, it's only okay for if you have a, a serious partner and or children, and that's the excuse. So I say like super simple ways that companies can encourage their employees to have these strong social ties is just like giving people extended lunch breaks a few times a month. Mm-hmm. Like, hey, go spend time with a friend, not for work reasons, mm-hmm. just to catch up with this friend. Yeah, it seems like that would also be good for uh, the company too, because a lot of times if you're not, if uh, a lot of times uh, the most business is done at the edges of a community. So, mm-hmm. so, so it's not the close connections that are done. So if a business has employees that are going to meet and strengthen the other, the business will find value from that as well because mm-hmm. they're, they're extending the network of that company. Yeah. And... Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. Today I did an interview with Jillian Richardson, and Jillian knows a lot about community. And at the time that I did this interview, I was very interested in what community means and what we're doing when we're building community. So I hope you enjoy this. If you do, please find us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, any of the major podcasting platforms, and go ahead and give us a review. And also hit the subscribe button. I hope you guys have a great day. Uh, Let me know what your thoughts are. I'm on Twitter, at Stuart Alsop, I-I-I. My DMs are open. Please leave a message. Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. My guest here is Jillian Richardson, uh, and we're going to have a conversation about community and what it means to be in community. Uh, So really excited to have you here and talk about community. Thank you. Yeah. And what brings you to San Francisco? So I'm in San Francisco to speak at a conference called CMX Summit, and it's a conference for professional community managers. Uh, And my talk was about three ways that companies can do their part to make the world a less lonely place. Mm. And what is the main struggle that, what is loneliness? Mm. I think that there's two really important elements to loneliness. Uh, The thing that I address the most in my work is people who know that they want deeper connection in their life and they're not exactly sure how to get it, uh, which is a really specific type of loneliness. There's other deeper roots with loneliness that are harder to immediately solve, like the way that we treat elderly people in America, um, people who have lots of mental health issues, who don't have access to the care that they need, people who have anxiety and believe that this feeling of not belonging is normal. Um, So the thing that I solve is kind of like the very tip of the iceberg, which is I know that I want deeper connections in my life. I know that there can be just stronger ties, and I'm not sure where to start. Mm. So that's the work that I do. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And I definitely have experience with that. Uh, and uh, uh, trauma is a huge issue with that because mm-hmm. we grow up with trauma, and a lot of that trauma, trauma, I mean, most trauma happens at the hands of other people or, mm-hmm. the, or the voice of other people. Uh, what is the role of trauma in, 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 in loneliness? Yeah. yeah. I'm so happy you asked me that question. <laughs> No one ever asked me this question, and I actually, so I included a little discussion about ACE scores or adverse childhood experiences for the people at home. Um, (laughs) Like, (laughs) hi. Um, And I was really nervous that doing that in this Mm. really corporate environment would be too weird, so I did it super quickly. Uh, But essentially saying, 
that there is a direct link between our adverse childhood experiences and our social, mental, and physical health as an adult. And that the CDC has found that the higher your ACE score is, meaning how many incidences of trauma you've had as a kid, the harder it's going to be for you as an adult to have a happy and healthy life. Uh, but at the same time, before anyone like freaks out and is like, well, then I'm just fucked. Like, I guess I can't do anything. There's also a thing called a resiliency score. Uh, and those are ways that you can balance out your adverse childhood experiences. Uh, and that's helping other people, mindfulness, and having a really strong social network. Mm. And really, community can help you address all of those things. And it's... It's sad that in the way that kind of American life is structured for a lot of people, it's not an, an, a given mm. that you have strong friendships, that you have people to mentor you, and that you have, you have a mindfulness practice and you have people to support. Mm. Like these are all things that we have to figure out on our own in a kind of a patchwork way. Mm. Uh, I want to give some other uh, uh, insights that from that ACE study that they did because mm-hmm. it is they, I think it was like 25,000 something like that like mm-hmm. a huge number of, of people and they found yeah. that the more um, adverse childhood experiences you have the more chronic pain you have mm-hmm. the likely, more likelihood you'll have chron- uh, cancer the, all, all these crazy different things about mm-hmm. like uh, the more you have the more likely all these different things is and then I've been geeking out all, all day about cancer as well mm-hmm. uh, and it, but it did a whole just really love and just talking about <laughs> cancer it's super well, fun yeah and 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 in, in the context of connective tissue so they're finding out that connective tissue this thing that connects our whole body um uh is uh a if the connective tissue is stiff it is a uh a breeding ground for cancer so cancer mm-hmm. won't have a good environment to grow in uh, if your uh, connective tissue is limber and, and fascia is connective. Whoa, I have never heard that. My brain immediately was like, Jillian, you need to stretch more. <laughs> like, well, that's that's what they're coming out. But the important thing to remember in terms of this is that stretching is not what common commonly think of when we think of stretching, like going to the end range of motion, like totally going to your end range of motion mm-hmm. and like stretching until you get that burn. Uh, it's actually like a 5 to 10% intensity mm-hmm. and only for about 5 to 10 minutes a day. Yeah. Uh, so it's like, and, and uh, you, know, you can do it, like ecstatic dance is a perfect Static dance is a stretch. When people think about stretch, they usually think the of the like uh, going to the maximum, like a like a like a contortionist would, mm-hmm. uh, and going into a full back bend or something like that. Really, all you're talking about is stretch. Is like this is a stretch. When I put my index finger back, mm-hmm. that's that's a stretch right there. So yeah. it can be really small and it can be targeted. So. Mm-hmm. Ecstatic dance is a stretch essentially. It's yeah. also strengthening because you you strengthen as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so. It's interesting, and then another form of stretching is body work. So mm-hmm. when somebody does body work on you, they're stretching your tissue as well. Yeah. Uh, and acupuncture is also a, a form of stretch. Uh, mm. So, but those last two are interesting because they involve community, and mm-hmm. there is some there is some factor of when another person is there providing some sort of treatment for you. That, yeah. That adds to that community feeling. Mm-hmm. Even either. with ecstatic dance, like ecstatic dance alone mm-hmm. is way different than ecstatic dance with like two hundred people. Mm. At least for me. Absolutely, for mm-hmm. me. And for me, it, like today, I went, and uh, it's so amazing because you go in there and and everybody's doing their own thing. But I've been to a lot of other dance events, and those other dance events is a lot of uh, judgment, uh, and a lot of people like you can feel it when you walk in. But at ecstatic mm-hmm. dance, they never feel that. I yeah. go in there and I never feel judged or anything mm-hmm. like that. But people are looking at me. But there are people looking at everybody. Mm-hmm. But there's no judgment going along with that look, and it's yeah. like it's just like oh, you're 
you're getting weird. Uh, yeah. Congratulations. <laughs> yeah. When you say other dance events, what do you mean? Uh, like, you know, going to a club or... or totally. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. 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 I had that experience recently. I went to a, a club in Brooklyn mm. and I never go to clubs. And actually this club, they have a, a sober dance event called the Get Down mm. every other Thursday. And I so I go to that dance party in this space and... People are being so free in their bodies. It's so fun. Like there's live music and there's just this feeling of like, you do you, whatever mm-hmm. you want to do. Like we're here and we accept you and we love you. And like, we're going to boost you up even more. Uh, and then at this party, there was like, ugh, I feel like sad even thinking about it, but just like so much self-consciousness, like palpable yeah. in the room. Like just people, so they're like, oh, we're at a club in Brooklyn. So we have to drink. We have to like take a lot of pictures of ourselves and it was kind of like this feeling of everyone is like standing there just wa- looking at each other, like mm-hmm. waiting for something to happen. It's like, fuck, this is just like mainstream culture is this. Yeah. And it's been funny for me because I've, I used to need to drink in order to dance. Uh, and then ecstatic dance and other dance events helped me to essentially uh, learn how to dance without that need of, of alcohol. But then I've been so put in certain situations recently where I'll, uh, one was in New York. I went to an, a, a silent disco in New York mm-hmm. uh, and nobody was dancing. Um, uh, but now I've gotten to the point with going to ecstatic dance so many times is that I can bring that into there mm-hmm. and like create that same time, or at least for myself, start dancing, not caring what anybody else is thinking, yeah. which is like the biggest thing. <laughs> the biggest thing that it's like, uh, you know, if, if, if my 10 year old, if it, myself from 10 year old, years old saw me in that situation, uh, it would have been very weird. Uh, cause you mm-hmm. know, uh, it's just so different. So that's interesting. It, all of this is bringing to mind the thing that m- stops people from being in community the most is maybe fear. What is the role yeah. of fear in this? I think it's the biggest thing is the fear of rejection. Mm. Uh, and I say this a lot that it's really common for people to be like, well, in dating, of mm-hmm. course you're going to get rejected. Like that's just the way it works. And in dating, it's pretty common advice. Like you put yourself out there that not everyone is right for you, that like you're going to find the right person. Uh, and so rejection, like there's still, of course, it's can be really terrible for people, but I've noticed not as much as with friendship stuff that, it feels really vulnerable just to say to someone like, Hey, I think you're cool. Like, do you want to go get tacos? Mm. And cause if that person says no, what does that say about me? Mm. This person doesn't even want to be friends with me. Like that means something is wrong with me. So in order to build a community though, you have to become okay with the threat of rejection. Yeah. And I think especially at first, like for me, moving to New York city, not knowing anyone, I constantly was going to events by myself, which meant, feeling really awkward and kind of out of the circle of people who were in, like I was on the outside uh, and that it was a muscle to start to be more comfortable with that and a skill to learn the right places where I could actually find my people and feel more comfortable more quickly. But it takes time to find those places. And it's so easy to just show up somewhere and be like, Oh, well, it didn't feel welcoming here. So Took off. I just, I'm just going to leave and I'm not going to do something like this for like three months. Uh-huh. Interesting. So we could go a couple different ways from here. We could go um, more into community, what it means, uh, or we could talk about the business side of community. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are what are you most interested in talking about? Ooh, let's say the business side of community because I don't talk about that as often. <laughs> All right, cool. Yeah. So what do you help uh, businesses do in terms of community? Is is that your job that you that you, that you 
Yeah. Honestly, I'm still figuring it out. Okay. But right now, the, the way that I'm paid for community is two things. Uh, one is I have a weekly newsletter of events that people can go to by themselves and leave with the new friend in uh, New York. So like cool. events with facilitated connection, like spaces uh, where it's far more likely that you'll feel like supported. And so I have advertisers in that newsletter, people who want to make sure that their event is promoted more than a week in advance, coaches who do work with people on a range of things, retreats, stuff like that. So that's a way that I'm paid. And another way that I'm paid is companies will pay me to make connections for them. Mm. So there's so many new event apps coming out and a lot of event apps that want to really promote events that facilitate community and connection because community is a buzzword right now. And a connection from me means way more than this company cold reaching out to people. So for me to say, hey, New York Ecstatic Dance Organizers, this company's probably going to help you sell more tickets. Uh, Would you be willing to put your event on their platform? Like, I'll do it for you. Are you okay with that? Mm. Uh, And just stuff like that where it's pretty great. Mm. I get to be paid to help my friends sell more tickets to their events. That's cool. Um, So it doesn't feel yucky like it feels like a very natural it feels very beneficial to everyone um but i think if i was in a more corporate like oh i'm the head of community for insert x big company name here i'd probably have some more dilemmas with it but the work i'm doing right now it's so quick yeah and it it might might change as well but but the 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 it's a really interesting point you bring up of essentially a community because uh, most of these startups got started with a community like Lyft had mm-hmm. a huge beneficial win-win community but then mm-hmm. they turned into a business and then that same type of community it's still there you still go into the Lyft and it's a different atmosphere than it is you're expected to mm-hmm. talk more with the driver you're expected to talk more with the other passengers yeah. rather than an Uber where you don't uh, but that that notion of community has changed as well. So it seems that businesses go in and hijack the community. Not hijack. I don't know. What what do you what does that bring up when I say that? Like that they that they hijack the community and then it turns into a business and the community's like no longer important. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. I think it can be Lyft. I don't know as much about the like. I don't associate community with Lyft, mm-hmm. but I think there are plenty of big companies that the bigger they've gotten, the more chance they have for community. Mm-hmm. Uh, the conference that I was at this week, there was a guy who works for EA Games, mm-hmm. and talking about what it's like to create a video game that reaches such a giant audience in all of these communities where people have these live gaming events, and there's all these tournaments and these people like who couldn't even leave their house because they're in bed or they're in a wheelchair or whatever. Uh, and they have this community of people. It's fascinating. Mm. Cause I'm, I notice I'm very quick to judge online community, uh, as like not as good. And of course, as a person who's able-bodied, I don't consider, and also that most of my identity is like not under threat. Like I'm a straight cis, white, able-bodied, upper-class lady. Uh Um, I don't have a lot of things where it's really difficult for me to find people to relate to. Mm. Uh, And that online can be good. So I think what I'm trying to say is that the bigger an online network is with the company, the higher the chances are that people can really find their people and find cool sub-communities. Let's talk about that. Uh, Mm -hmm. So I've been really interested in this online, offline community. Uh, Okay, yeah, I'll go there. So I, I, I grew up and I was uh, really overweight uh, and uh, and uh, 
community was really hard for me to find. Uh, and then I lost a lot of weight when I was like 19 to 20. Uh, mm-hmm. Other people started uh, treating me differently. Uh, but I, it's taken me a long time to adapt to the way that other people were treating me. Uh, and so uh, I still have a lot of fear around community. Uh, and and I don't have that same fear around in, in online communities. Um, mm-hmm. And so... I've gotten really good, particularly with this podcast, most of the guests that I've found, I've found them on Twitter, like I've, I've, I'm getting really good at building online community, uh, but it is much more difficult for me to uh, engage with and be in uh, in-person community. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really interesting, so I've been thinking about this a lot, because if I, if I ask somebody in uh, on Twitter, if they want to do an interview, I'm, and I'm asking like 20, 30 people a day. I'm not, not that many, actually. I'm like maybe five to 10 a day. Uh, and then, uh, and then uh, somebody rejects me on Twitter. It's through, first of all, through my linguistic barrier. So it mm-hmm. happens through like I read it, uh, and, and, and then it's just like some random person on the, on the internet who rejects me. But if I were to do the same thing in person, it's like the whole weight, emotional weight, plus the fact that a lot of times in person people uh, will. Uh, obfuscate from the truth and won't be direct with you mm-hmm. and say all these other things so it's like uh rejection seems much more intimate <laughs> well that's the whole thing it's like intimacy in person mm-hmm. is a much more thing so that that's the main thing i've noticed online and offline is that is that intimacy component mm-hmm. most people say they can't do the online thing because they don't can't get that intimacy thing mm-hmm. uh, and it's interesting it seems like we're entering a new age where um some people uh particularly gamers and other people like that are are uh, spending most of their social lives online, uh, yeah. which is very interesting. It's a very mm-hmm. interesting where that's going. So. Yeah. Well, with that, that there's this stat that Gen Z is uh, the loneliest identifying generation uh, and that 22% of millennials say that they have zero friends. Uh, and uh, a friend and I were having a conversation of like, well, what if because we're so used to like online interactions and not as mm. good at reading social cues and figuring out where we stand with people, that actually these millennials do have friends. They're just bad at recognizing that they do mm. and like being in conversation about what friendship means and relationship expectations and all this stuff. Because it's hard for me to believe that 22% of millennials actually have no friends. Mm. It's easier for me to believe that they believe they have no friends. Mm-hmm. Randomly, that's also uh, somebody once told me that the country of Chile has a similar ratio of, of, of uh, no friends. Yeah. Uh, like uh, Chileans have like the least amount of friends, but it's probably a similar thing where it's like, pr- yeah, probably those 22% do interact with a lot of people online. But that's the other thing about online is that it's, it takes, uh, just as I was saying, that the rejection comes easier, so does the um, not following up or not the, mm-hmm. so it's like it's not, it doesn't have that same type of weight that uh, in-person communication does or in-person community does. Yeah. yeah. And it, it was interesting. The um, So the conference that I was at this week, they gave some stats on like the state of community. They just did a study, and it said that only 4% of the corporate communities, at the very least, were only in-person, hmm. that there's a lot of things that also have an online component. Hmm. Uh, and the, the premise of my book, On Lonely Planet, is that like as attendance and organized religion is going down, loneliness is going up. Uh, and that mm-hmm. a lot of people who aren't religious like me were kind of looking for these new ways to feel the sense of connection that organized religion could give in a much more simple way. Because it's like, okay, well, I know I'm going to go to this place every week. A lot of the same people are going to be there. We share some of the same values. 
we're here to help each other, like church one done well. Uh, there's some higher power that we all feel connected to. Uh, and no matter where I go, there's going to be something like this that I can be with. Mm. Uh, and that we're still trying to figure out what the new version of this mm. looks like. Uh, so I think that the in-person intimacy is so tied into that. Like, okay, we're going to create intimacy just by the fact of being in the same space and talking about life and death every week. Like, there's no way it's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. That's interesting because as you were saying that, it made me think about ecstatic dance and ecstatic dance does now serve that purpose, although I'm still afraid of community and I haven't entered the community. Just going there and doing that every week has been extremely helpful and yeah. super healthy. Um, and that's every week here, which is awesome. Mm-hmm. In New York, it's not every week. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. I thought it was every Tuesday. Um, I guess every... Every other Tuesday, uh-huh. but there is like there's five rhythms almost every day of the week. Fridays there's dance lab, which does include an ecstatic dance. That's the one I went to. Right? Yeah, yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. I went to one in Brooklyn, mm-hmm. uh, and it was that was the dance lab, and it was like in this random building in Brooklyn. Like, yep. Yeah, X marks the loft. Yeah, yeah, yeah mm-hmm. that's the one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and it's really interesting because dance is like that's traditionally been the most. That's where you know it's like in my impression of, of what we were doing, you know, thousands of years ago as we would kind of, you know, roam around the earth and like get a fire to go on and mm-hmm. dance and stuff like that. Seems like that's probably what we we're doing. Uh, and it's so interesting that there's this new thing rising that has dance, this dance component to it and this community component to it as well. So what, 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 what is the relationship between dance and community? Mm, that's a really good question. Actually, I talk a lot about this in my book too, huh. because if I have a similar relationship with dance where a few years ago, if you put me on a dance floor, I literally wouldn't move. I would be so scared that I wouldn't move. I would just be like, nope, I'm out of here, bye. Um, and so to have communities where I knew, because a lot of my friends are into dance, and I was like, I feel like I can't relate to them in this major way. I'm missing out on all of these things. Uh, and it's like, obviously, it's a huge block in my actual body. Uh, and so to have these spaces where I could go, like every week or every other week, and be around the same people, and that they're encouraging me to grow by just physically being there and like seeing that I'm uncomfortable dancing with me anyways. Uh, and that, so there's one community called the get down. And since I promote events, they kind of brought me into their like team of people who help promote the party. We have dinner parties together. Now we have this Facebook group called the get together where it's all the people who love the get down just being like, Hey, I'm in a park. Who wants to come Uh, stretch with me for an hour or whatever. uh, Um, and so that it's a community of people and where we share these values of movement and play and self-expression and just like being free in your body that it's easy for me to forget that how rare even just that element of it is. Mm-hmm. Like even if it was just the dance component that it's like you can go and you could cry on the dance floor and people be fine with it. Like, there's people who go in and they're grieving, and, like, we're just there for them. Uh, it's so beautiful. Um, really interesting about movement and dance and uh, the way it moves emotion. Somebody, I was talking about somebody with it recently about how... Um, so when I first started dancing, it was very similar. Well, and today, all right, today I, would, I, I was just... Re- Somebody had once told me that if you're on the dance floor, you have to move or you have to dance. And Mm -hmm. it was really fun today in ecstatic dance, not moving and just being totally still Mm -hmm. uh, and like not not having that. And then if 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 the music came up and I I wanted to join, 
uh, join, then I would dance, but I was primarily staying still. Um, and that's really interesting. But then go back to the point you made about essentially like dance allows us to move these emotions in a way that's really interesting. And it's like the primal flow state. So that's, mm-hmm. the, it's like the original way that we get into flow, uh, is dance. Mm-hmm. And it brings up emotions the quickest for me. So it's like, uh, in meditation, if I sit down for meditation, then it'll happen pretty quickly as well. Um, but something about dance and moving the body, like, because the emotions gets trapped in the body. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, how, like dance immediately gives us access to those, mm-hmm. particularly in that state that you're talking about of essentially like having that anxiety because it brings up for a lot of people. It's not, it's not mm-hmm. like it's not uh, particularly in, in the West and in, in the U S um, which is so interesting. Cause it's like European cultures have dance. Most cultures have dance, but for some reason in America, modern America, we have lost the cultural dancing. And I think it has a lot to do with evangelical churches because they, mm-hmm. they kind of said that dancing was the devil. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's interesting that we've kind of lost. And w- so, okay, so when you, when you get into that state, do you still get that state or now do you feel pretty free every time you go into the dance? I feel pretty free. Um, if it's been a good chunk of time since I've danced, I notice that there is this like, Oh crap! Like, can I do this? Will I stick out as the person who's not as comfortable in her body as anyone else? Like, how obvious is it going to be? Um, but that, like, I typically try and go to a dance thing at least once a week, mm-hmm. uh, and so it's typically not that much of an issue anymore. Yeah. Uh-huh. And so, when you were, when it was an issue, uh, what did it feel like? Oh my god oh my god so in the book i talk about there was a moment where i was with uh david and i's mutual friend duncan and this other guy and we were at a bar and there was like a disco ball and it was this tiny back room and it was all these people and they were super drunk and there was this guy and he like had a tie wrapped around his head and he was just blackout drunk and he he saw like how awkward i was being in my body and drunk person with no filter he was like you look awkward as hell he just like came up to me and was like, you look so uncomfortable. <laughs> and it was because I was, it was like, I felt like I couldn't move my body or like that if I made any big motion, I would be too noticeable. Yep. Mm-hmm. And so it's like this desire to, to curl up almost and to hide. And this also intense desire to run away. Like I think in 30 minutes I went to the bathroom three times. Cause so I was just like, I don't want people to see me. I think for me it was a lot of like not wanting to be seen, not wanting the discomfort in my body to be obvious. I was like, well, if I just don't do anything, then it'll be fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like, it was a giant spotlight on how uncomfortable I was in my own skin. Mm. Definitely uh, resonates with me in that. And it uh, reminds me of the freeze uh, fight. No, I'm sorry, f- fight, uh, flee or freeze. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it's like this, this kind of uncomfortable situation between both where the sympathetic nervous system and the parasympathetic nervous system are both kind of offline and you freeze instead of uh, either one. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, somatic experiencing can be super helpful for this because mm-hmm. do you know the somatic experiencing? Yeah. yeah. So yeah. Uh, have you done it? Done mm-hmm. it? Yeah. Uh, so yeah, it can be super helpful for that. And, uh, and, but that's what, that's what dance feels like. It feels like ecstatic dance is somatic experiencing. And which brings to mind another kind of, um, there are all these techniques uh, that we use to, kind of get through trauma but uh doesn't really matter like anything can be therapeutic it seems Mm -hmm. like nothing nothing like 
we have this idea that you must go to a therapist and the therapist will heal you mm-hmm. and that will be therapy and, and everything yeah. else is that that's separate but everything can be therapeutic this conversation can mm-hmm. be therapeutic so here here's, what is uh, what are the conditions for therapeutic for a therapeutic event yeah so I talk a lot about like healing spaces uh, to me, that's a space where you can be in your messy emotions and you mm. feel safe enough to do that and it's accepted. Uh, so I think, like, yes, anything can be therapeutic, but I think the rarer thing is a space where it feels safe to get into the emotional releases that I believe are need to happen in order for something to move through and to process. Um, and I really feel like we need more of these spaces. Uh, so like men's circles, women's circles retreats stuff like that uh i think that's why retreats are so popular right now Mm. uh is because it's it's like i feel like people don't know even how to go on vacation anymore (laughs) it's like well (laughs) i need structure like give me a thing to do interesting and that these retreats give a sense of at least the ones that i go go on it's a really great sense of community because it's like you wake up you're doing movement together you're sharing all your meals together Mm. great conversations like dance and just time to move things through and that the container is set where it's like if you cry mm-hmm. if you're angry it's okay there's someone here who's skilled enough to hold you in this and not mess you up even more mm-hmm. and then i think a big problem is most people have no idea that these spaces exist what they are where to go and like or the financial access to get to them mm-hmm. or the social access to people who've done something like it before so it doesn't feel so foreign mm-hmm. Um, my parents deal with this where like they live in like Republican Florida land and they're really curious about men's circles and women's circles, but they don't know anyone who's doing stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So it feels like this crazy out there, impossible thing. That's very interesting. There's a few things to come to mind with that. There's, um, one is Alfred Adler. He, so Freud and, uh, uh, Jung are the two popular kind of therapists that came mm-hmm. around in the 18, 1870s and I think it was 1870s. No, uh, uh, and, and so then there was another one named Alfred Adler who was, who was in that same time period and was in the same coffee shops as both of them. Uh, and he developed the, his thoughts on community is that it doesn't actually have anything to do with uh, the human, I mean, I'm sorry, uh, it is not necessarily only human connection. Uh, mm-hmm. So community for him is the entire environment that you're in. Yeah. Uh, so like it not, not only would the community be me and you in this mm-hmm. room, but it would also be everybody listening. Mm-hmm. But not only the human element, just the inanimate objects mm-hmm. would also be part of community. Um, mm-hmm. And so this gets into something that I've been working with, which is essentially uh, these spaces are really great. Like ecstatic dance, the fact that I can go there and I can feel safe to, mm-hmm. to cry, to do, do whatever I need to do in order to experience that are great, uh, but they're not always around. Uh, mm-hmm. So if I want to live a life that is truly free, uh, I need to establish my own safety. Yeah. Um, and I've learned it from going into these safe safe spaces and going into a lot of body workers and having them provide that, that safe mm-hmm. space and stuff like that. But then the real test is whether you can bring it into your everyday life and all the time yeah. and find that safety no matter where you are. Mm-hmm. Um, Unless you're in a dangerous uh, situation, then you need to remove yourself from the dangerous situation. Um, yeah. But that's a that's a thing that's a tricky part about trauma is that it 
makes you think that everything is a dangerous situation. Yeah. Um, it's the same with loneliness that our brain, when we're lonely, perceives social cues differently. So if I have been isolated for three days and I go to a party, you giving me a neutral facial expression, mm-hmm. I could read as you judging me. Mm-hmm. Versus if I had come in feeling really connected and we were talking, I would be far less likely to see your face and think, oh, he's judging me. So it's kind of this self-perpetuating cycle of the loneliness making me see the world in a more negative way, which reinforces that I should go isolate myself, and it just gets worse and worse. Mm. That's a really good point. Um, and when I, I've been going on these crazy trips into the woods on my own, which I've really enjoyed going on my own, because I've gotten that community sense where I can go into the woods and I can mm-hmm. have that, that community sense with everything around me. And, I, and when I go into the woods, I don't feel lonely. Uh, when I, when I, when I'm here, I feel lonely. Um, yeah. uh, why do you I, think that is? Why do I think that I'm feel lonely here mm-hmm. because of this whole community thing and being a sort of lone wolf and kind of, that's the traditionally been the way that I interact because I've, I've, I make a lot of individual friendships, but anytime there's more than like one person that I'm interacting with, I get kind of, um, I just don't like it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and I don't know why that is. I haven't really inquired into that a lot, but, uh, but yeah, it's, it's like, so I, and I'll give a little background. I, I spent about 10 years living in other countries and about five of those years was, uh, going on, uh, study abroad programs. And, mm-hmm. uh, so, and you go, uh, you go to these schools and there'd be foreigners from all around the world um, all going to school with you mm-hmm. uh, and you'd basically it'd be instant community you'd go there and because you're in a foreign environment mm-hmm. and everybody else is a foreign environment you bond like crazy yeah. um, so that, that that time I found I was able to find community in a way that like I did have a group of people but that's been the only time that I've been consistently able to, to, to like uh, have a community Particularly in San Francisco, it's hard because I because there's so much. Uh, I grew up here, and there's so much like uh, trauma and and kind of like uh, uh, all the m- when uh, memories they they get you know it's like they're very tied to location and yeah. and so it's like and, and trauma trauma is very tied to location mm-hmm. so uh, so it's the context within it and then so like coming back it's always harder to to, to uh, do it in the actual environment where the trauma came from but that's probably why I'm here as well uh, to like come back and. And, and work through that but, yeah yeah mm-hmm. thank you for sharing that with me. <laughs> sure I'm not sure if I actually answered the question but mm. uh, yeah, yeah. I understand yeah yeah um, so if there's one thing that somebody can do in order to so there's somebody and they've realized that they're lonely mm-hmm. uh, and they're in a city um, what can that person do in order to find community? Yeah. One thing I would say, especially if you've recently moved to a city, this might feel more comfortable. Uh, it's just straight up asking people publicly to connect you to people. Um, this is a thing that I recommend to friends all the time is just be like, Hey, I'm moving to Chicago. Who should I know? Mm. And then chances are like every city has its super connectors, like people, like me, who just are, love connecting people to other people, they'll be like, oh, you should meet Jillian. And, or even say like, hey, I'm moving to Chicago. Who can I meet? Especially people in these three areas. And then you go, or honestly, no matter how long you've lived in a city, you can mm-hmm. always ask for this. I encourage people constantly just 
ask your online community for help, people love offering help. Mm-hmm. And it's so rare for someone to so explicitly ask for something. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's the hard yeah. part because the, the that it's rare because it's so anxiety producing mm-hmm. to, ask, ask, to ask something, particularly public asking. Yeah, yeah. And I find myself doing it all the time and very few people respond, which is an mm-hmm. interesting thing. But I, but it's because I'm asking, I, I, I generally like to do things that push my edge. Uh, and so I, I'm going to a lot of improv and we're going to a lot of uh, partner dance classes. Uh, and I think most of my friends probably are uh, intimidated by that. So mm-hmm. that, I think that's why they're, they're, not, they're not actually doing it. But yeah, it's really interesting. I make, I make public requests all the time and it's sometimes... Uh, a lot of a lot of them, I, I, I should be really grateful because a lot of them are are, are uh, received and 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 like acted upon, uh, but other ones are not. So yeah. Uh, uh-huh. um, so let's go back to business and business and community. Um, what would be a one way to for a company to what is important? for a company to realize when they are um, growing or nurturing a community? Mm -hmm. I think one thing is to remind your employees that it's okay and that you want them to have deep relationships outside of the workplace. I think one reason why companies go wrong and their, their corporate culture can go really sour is that people are spending all of their time at work and it's not encouraged or it's even shamed subtly or not subtly to leave the office. And a thing that I talked about at this conference last week is how it's acceptable for someone to say, hey, I need to leave this meeting early. I'm going, I need to spend time with my wife, with my kids, and that's completely okay. But no one pretty much ever says like, I need to go and spend time with my best friend. Mm. Like I want to deepen this relationship. And for some reason that's weird when really friendships tend to last longer than romantic romantic partnerships. And we need these multiple types of ties in order to have a strong social support network. Mm. But for some reason, it's only okay for if you have a a serious partner and or children, and that's the excuse. So I say like super simple ways that companies can encourage their employees to have these strong social ties. is just like giving people extended lunch breaks a few times a month. Mm. Like, hey, go spend time with a friend, not for work reasons. Mm just to catch up with this friend. Uh, it seems like that would also be good for uh, the company too, because a lot of times, if you're not, if uh, a lot of times uh, the most business is done at the edges of a community. So, mm-hmm. so, so it's not the close connections that are done. So if a business has employees that are going to meet and strengthen the other, the business will find value from that as well because mm-hmm. they're, they're extending the network of that company. Yeah. Um, basically, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Like these things all have benefits. Um, and even just like encouraging employees to not just bring a spouse on a like work event or work retreat, but to bring a friend. Mm. Like how I've never heard of someone say like, "Oh, I brought my friend on a work retreat." Um, how cool would that be? Interesting. There's a lot of uh, in here in San Francisco. It's uh, a lot of companies like companies that are just kind of in their ascendancy will make sure to do a lot of events uh, for the startup community, uh, mm-hmm. which is super interesting. That's that's actually how I found a huge value in, in being in San Francisco. But it's weird though. There's a nuance to it because you go, you go there, there's all these startup events that you can go to. And when I was a founder, that was really great because mm-hmm. I'd go and I'd meet people. And then I made a lot of friends there as well, yeah. like actual friends that I have now uh, going to these startup communities. 
But then that's there's an issue with it too because in San Francisco it, it has become super transactional because mm-hmm. uh, essentially if if there's a investor so the the dynamics of it are that it, um, a VC investor will meet a lot of startup founders mm-hmm. uh, because if they and so the the priority will be meeting more and more and more founders knowing that 10 90% of them they're not going to invest in mm-hmm. but they but they want to get access to that one company that's going to be a billion dollar company and yeah. so um, that encourages transactional relationship on the on the VC level and that mm-hmm. goes into the founders as well so the founders but it's also good for the founders because the more fa- uh, the more people that founders know the larger the networks is the mm-hmm. more they can get employees and so and then it seeps down into the rest of the community as well so I'm finding that in San Francisco it's very very easy to find superficial connections mm-hmm. it's very very difficult to find deep connections yeah. people who actually show up on time like in San Francisco it's like it's really bad uh, uh, people are not uh, unless it's for a work thing if it's for work thing they'll show up but if it's for a personal thing uh, it's ridiculous There's, uh, so I have a, it's, I have a, uh, uh, a lot of uh, angst that comes up when <laughs> on this particular one but mm-hmm. yeah uh, so yeah that's the, how do you how do you find this balance I've asked a couple people this before how do you find this balance between uh, uh, having kind of transactional relationships a large network but then also finding deep relationships yeah. Ooh, that phrase transactional relationships even is like hard for me to accept. Um, but I guess, yeah, I'm sure for a lot of people in their work that does feel necessary that like the more people you know, the better it is for your business. That's not a thing that I... I can give you a nuance to it as well, yeah. which is that uh, a trend, uh, uh, some people argue that all relationships are transactional yeah. uh, uh, because we all, you know, get various things from all, all these all these different people. So even a deep relationship can be transactional because we're getting our emotional needs, needs met and stuff fair. like that. Uh, but then there's this nuance, which is that there's, I guess it's not transactional, but more superficial is the mm-hmm. word I'm looking for. So if... If I were to, you know, I met, you know, somebody for coffee a mm-hmm. week ago, and then if I were to ask them, hey, you know, I'm yeah. going to the hospital, yeah. can you look at look, look mm-hmm. around? I can't ask them that. You know? Totally. It's like, yeah. Yeah. Well, I think with that, this is also just a problem of being so connected. Like, this is a thing that I totally struggle with, is it's, especially because part of my work is experiencing new events, it's so easy for me to constantly meet shiny new people and be like, oh, like, we should hang out, and then we hang out twice, and then I never see them again. Um, but it's exciting. Yeah. And so I've started to make it a practice of saying no to all of these people mm-hmm. uh, and the people who are reaching out to me and just saying like, hey, I'm making it a priority to deepen the relationships I already have in my life right now. Mm-hmm. Because it's not natural. Like We're not designed to have this many connections and to be trying to keep track of like 500 loose tie friends. Uh, and it's not good for our happiness. Mm-hmm. Like I'm not going to feel, at least for me, and there are studies around this too, but from my personal experience of just spending time with a new person for two hours versus someone I've been friends with for five years and we can just drop in and I feel really connected to them. There's a, there's a difference in the richness of that relationship. Mm. Um, but it takes skill to manage that because a hundred years ago, it wasn't possible for us to be connected to this many people. Although I want to give you a nuance though. Mm-hmm. Cause there's a, there's, so uh, there's this great book called uh, Behave by Robert Sapolsky. Yeah. And, and so you may have heard of Dunbar's number of about 150 yeah. people. Mm-hmm. That's the maximum. Uh, so it's really interesting. They He's uh, done a lot of research on primates and he knows a lot of other people are doing research on primates. And uh, we've got this part of our free to prefrontal cortex that is relate, related to our social relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Uh, they did uh, studies on rhesus monkeys to figure out 
what happens if you increase the amount of social connections? Uh, what happens to this part of the brain? Yeah. Uh, and it actually grows. Uh, so mm. you can actually train your prefrontal cortex by having larger mm-hmm. amount of relationships. And once I read that, I started testing it out on myself. And it's true. Like, it, yeah. it, 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 the more people I know and the more people I can have a relationship with and the more and, um, and like be in, in community with, uh, the uh, more it feels like my brain is growing, but it's stressful. Mm-hmm. It's very stressful yeah. uh, because it's like it's, we be, the prefrontal cortex also grew as we became more social. So mm-hmm. so it's like, and also we have it's very dangerous. It can be very dangerous for a human being uh, in the past to uh, to uh, mess up those social relationships. Mm-hmm. So I feel like most people, unless they 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 are either uniquely gifted or uniquely pathological, mm-hmm. uh, probably have. Uh, a lot of fear when it comes to social relationships and making the wrong moves and mm-hmm. doing all these things. So it's like if you have a large group that you're interacting with um, and it's varied, it's, it's, uh, it's, it, it brings a lot of complexity into it. Yeah. yeah. I experienced that for sure. The the fear of just saying to someone like, and not lying, yeah. being like, oh, I don't have time. Just being like, actually, since you're a new relationship to me, I've made the choice to not prioritize relationships like this right now. Like, mm-hmm. I hope you understand. Mm-hmm. And then I've had people be really upset. Right. And it's like, that's my biggest fear is someone being really hurt by me making a choice uh, for my own boundaries. But you gotta do that's it. what happens. Yeah. And ultimately, in like 10 years, you probably forget about that. And, you know, it's oh, for yeah. sure. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So it's but it's like in that moment. Uh, and that's the, the, the part of the prefrontal cortex uh, is also tapped tapped into emotion as well. So mm-hmm. it's 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 very emotional, whatever decisions we make like that. So like something like that, like it's a huge emotional, but that's a crazy thing about, about emotions that if you let them pass, they pass very quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, but it's hard to let them pass that quickly. Yeah. To actually give yourself permission to feel them yeah. and train yourself to learn how to feel emotions. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Pretty good trauma. Um, well, cool. So what's, what's the book you wrote? What's it called? So it's called Unlonely Planet. Okay. Yeah. Uh-huh. That's a great name. Thank you. <laughs> Came up with it myself. Yeah. Uh, and so if we got, we got a couple minutes left, what is kind of the, uh, biggest thing you want to leave my audience to understand about, uh, community loneliness and stuff like that? Who the biggest thing, and I think, well, the biggest thing that I always say is that if you feel lonely, you're not alone, Mm -hmm. that there's so much shame around loneliness, even now as loneliness is being talked about so much more than it ever has before, that there's still this stigma around owning it and talking about it uh and so if anyone is listening and they feel lonely know that like the numbers are ridiculous that like the average american has one close friend 75 percent of people are not satisfied with their friendships Mm. the average american hasn't made a new friend in five years that like actually the the norm is is loneliness uh and that there are ways to get out of that state, but that it is uncomfortable and that it's awkward. And that I think for me, it helps to reframe it. It's like, okay, we expect that there's going to be awkwardness around dating. Mm. We don't think about the awkwardness in finding a new community, but it's exactly the same. And I would argue it's more important Mm. because dates come and go, relationships come and go, but a really rich community of friends can last forever. Mm. Well, as long as you live. Yeah, forever into yeah. the next life when you're like cockroaches together or something. Yeah, yeah. interesting. 
Um, and uh, what, what is the newsletter called? How can people, if they're in New York, sign up for yeah. it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the newsletter is called The Joy List, mm-hmm. and the website is joylist.nyc. Mm-hmm. Cool. Are you going to expand to other places too? or That is the plan. Oh, okay. So if you live in another city and you're either interested in having The Joy List in your city or being a city lead, there's a little tap at the top of the website that says add your city, mm-hmm. and you can just fill on the form. What's the next city? Um, probably San Francisco, just because... There's even more wellness events here than yeah. in New York. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Very cool. And how can people find you? If, do, you do you have any social media stuff going on? There? Yes. Yeah. So uh-huh. I'm that Jillian, uh-huh. uh, J-I-L-L-I-A-N, on Twitter and Instagram and LinkedIn. Uh-huh. Yeah. All the things. <laughs> cool. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Yeah. I hope you enjoyed this episode with Jillian. I'll be releasing episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday uh, pretty early in the morning each of those days. I will be going on a 10-day meditation retreat in uh, Mexico, and so I'll be off for then, but I'll schedule some podcast episodes to be published for then. And I then will be going on another type of retreat, which I'll explain in a later episode, um, So for the month of February, I'll still be releasing episodes, but I won't be as active on Twitter or any other places. Uh, But you can always reach out to me and I'll get back to you. My Twitter is at Stuart Allsop, I-I-I, and my DMs are open. Would love to hear from you. Have a great day.